You're listening to the World Outreach Podcast, dynamic conversations designed to empower our community as we engage unreached people groups everywhere. It is often said in missions that missions require three things, people, prayer, and provision. In today's conversation, Miles Wilson is going to share from over 40 years of mission experience and training in over 80 countries, how we can build a team to get all three. Miles has been one of the pioneers of ministry partner development, MPD for short, helping gospel workers be fully funded and in healthy relationships with people providing prayer and encouragement as they work to fill God's call on their lives. Miles' wisdom, experience, and biblical perspective will encourage all of us who desire to see God be glorified in the nations. Let's get right to this conversation. Miles, thank you for joining us today on the World Outreach Podcast. Really excited to speak to you today. You're welcome, Ben. What I'd like to do is just, we're going to talk about um, ministry partner development today. Um, that's kind of your area of specialty and, and understanding. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself to help us um, know you a little bit better? From Ireland uh, originally, and we've lived in a number of places outside Ireland over the years, but currently back here with Phyllis, my wife and I moved back here, mostly to take care of aging parents who have now all passed on. So we live about 20 kilometers from Belfast, uh, right by the sea. I can be I can be walking on the beach in a minute from my apartment or two minutes, which is nice. Uh, no kids, um, age 69, getting too old for these things. Uh, lived on a supported basis since january 75 so that's 46 years but over 46 years 46 years okay so a long time you've done it all you've seen it all you've probably got some good stories and some bad stories of the journey of mpd and living on support yeah and we still have people supporting us from 1975 who've given monthly since then which is amazing yeah that is amazing so tell me a little bit about um, your ministry background, what you've done um, in your journey towards this, towards uh, helping and working with people in their MPD area? Yeah, I mean, I need to go back a generation, a bit if I can, this story to my parents. My parents were, were married in 1946. Uh, they were both Christians. And within a year of being married, they uh, were asked, would they consider going to China with a friend of theirs who was going as a missionary to China with what was then China Inland Mission? And they prayed about it and realized the call of God on their lives was to send, not to go. Not that they were choosing easy options, a definite call of God. So they spent their entire lives focusing on sending into cross-cultural mission. So as kids, that was the highlight of our life was mission, giving to mission. Anything to do with anything to do with mission was a great excitement in our family. But at that time, they made that decision. My parents listed everything they owned which wasn't a lot for a young working class couple. My dad was an electrician. My mum worked in a cafe in, in, at a bus station. But they listed everything they owned and committed it to the extension of God's kingdom through mission. And then they added at the bottom something they had forgotten. They said, and our children not yet born. And they committed all of us as children to mission work without telling us that that would be like spiritual blackmail if they said, you will be a missionary. Uh, so, but we... So, so we grew up with a warm feeling about mission and with parents praying that we would go into mission. Fast forward a generation, Phyllis and I were married in 74. Within a year of us being married, just like my parents, we were asked, would we go into mission? And we prayed about it, thought about it, not knowing the decision was already made for us by my parents and said yes. So in January, in end of January, last day of January 75, we started and supported mission and I disliked the emotion of how it felt being supported. I enjoyed being part of a giving family, but I did not like being a receiver. I struggled with it. I just didn't know what to do with this. And I, I grew up in a quite a pietistic, uh, you know, just step out there, God will deal with it. Never talk about money background. That was my, my church background. Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, all those guys. But then then I heard about guys like D.L. Moody, who is an incredibly strong evangelist, 
an incredibly upfront fundraiser and thought, this is weird. Here's people with with polar opposites in how they view this theologically, but God's using all of it. So I thought, I don't want how I determine scriptures to be viewed through the focus of these godly men. I would rather do it the other way around. I'd rather see what does scripture tell me so then I can look at how these people act. So I spent three years on my own, basically from 75 to 78, trying to work out what does the word of God say about giving and receiving? And that was incredibly helpful. Give a foundation for me. I realized things like the giver always wins. It is more blessed to give than to receive. But then the converse of that was true. And that that struck me why my emotions were struggling. It is less blessed to receive than to give, right? It's just a reality. When you live in a support basis financially, you receive more than you give. So I have a less blessed life here. That's fine. But the supporters are doing okay. I was the one struggling. And I realized I could rob them of the blessing by being hesitant, negative, and apologetic in how I approached them. That would rob them of the blessing that came. So I began talking to other people about it. Uh, we were working with Agape at the time in student ministry in Ireland, um, in Galway and Dublin, and talked to all, lots of people in our own organization and other missions, and nobody was excited about living in support. This is back 45 years ago. People use terms like, yeah, in our organization, we have to. Negative language was used. But I began seeing it as a positive. I began seeing all the benefits. So I increasingly just got more and more involved in that whole area until 1993. From then on, it's the only thing I've done is worked with organizations around the globe in 80-something countries, helping them understand both biblically and practically what it means to live by the support of others to be involved in gospel work. Well, that's fantastic. And so it's been a real faith journey then for you as you've personally dealt with it. And now you've helped um, multiple organizations around the world deal with this. What, what what kind of changed in your heart? How did you go from that stage of like, this is actually what I need to do and why is it so important? I suppose over the years, there are four scripture passages I link together to, to, to talk about the importance of this. One is Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For me, that's God's agenda for this earth. It's a future promise. Uh, there are other, other verses that say that the earth is filled with his glory. It's just what's missing is the knowledge of that glory. And that's what mission is. We are there to reflect his glory. Then when Jesus was on earth, he was aware of that and looked around and said, the harvest is ready. It's just not enough people to reap this harvest. We need laborers. Interestingly, he did not ask people to pray for the harvest. This is always there. He asked people to pray for the, the, the laborers. And it was the disciples he asked to pray that prayer. It was to, to the disciples he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. And then a short time later, two or three years later, he pointed to those same guys and said, you're the answer to your own prayers. Go and make disciples. Uh, that was probably a shock to them. They realized this thing they'd been praying for, they were the answer to the prayer themselves. But actually, and that's often the high point of mission mobile go and make disciples in all fullness and all lands, etc. But Paul took it one step further with the young church in Rome, where he said, but how will they preach unless someone sends them? So for me, the whole process of ministry partner development is making that connection work best so that those who go are well sent, so that the harvest is reaped, so that the knowledge of God's glory fills more of the earth. For me, that ministry partner development is the facilitator for the advancement of the knowledge of God's glory. And once I realized that, I thought, well, this is nothing would ever to do with me getting money. This is to do with, with God's glory. And that 
that puts it in a whole different perspective for me. So that that's why I get excited about it. Absolutely. It is a totally different perspective. That is a great example of piecing the different, the narrative that run through scripture and the narrative behind how this great commission, how this task was put before us could actually come to t- fruition. Why don't you explain to me what is MPD, Ministry Partner Development? What do you mean by that? It's an insider term in, in the mission industry these days and like all terms it can have it can be meaningless but for me it is ministry partner development it's to do with ministry it's to do with the extension of god's kingdom it's to do with with that mission of god it is a partnership recognizing that those who go and those who send are equals i mean i learned this from my parents my parents were equal with the missionaries working together in a task. And they understood that to be a partnership, not just simply them being a source of money. I'm not sure if the missionaries always understood it that way, but my parents did as senders. So it, it is to do with the, with God's ministry. It is a partnership to make it work. That's what Paul said to his supporters in Philippi, that he thanked God for their partnership in the gospel. And it is development because it, it takes time. It, it's a process. It doesn't. Uh, it doesn't magically appear. It. I mean, Phyllis and I would still spend five or six hours a week, every week, keeping in touch with our existing supporters. We have a sort of a rule of thumb that we would never go to bed at night without being in touch with a supporter somewhere, any day of the year. Well, it's just it becomes your life. Uh, so it is the ministry of God done in partnership over a period of time. The ministry of God done in partnership over a period of time. How is that? Um, it sounds very relational. If it's partnership, if it's done over time. Yeah. Talk to me about that kind of relational aspect to this. We're not just looking at dollar amounts or euros or whatever. We're, we're looking beyond just the financing of ministries. Yeah, it? absolutely. And God in his being is relational. It's interesting. If you go back to the creation story, the first five days of creation in the creation story, all you know about this God, he is powerful and he wants to create because it says God said and it happened. But on day six, when it was mankind was in the mix here, the wording is different. The wording is and God said, let us make man. So at the point that God is creating humans, it suddenly becomes relational. We, we get a glimpse into the relational nature of God. So mankind was created by relationship for relationship. The fall broke the relationship. And then the rest of the story is God relationally restoring it. And then you get John 1.14, the word became flesh and put his tent with our tents in the original. Even the process of restoring the relationship was done relationally for relationships. So relationship is both the means and the end in how God functions. Why would we not do our partnership development the same way? It is out of sync with how God is if we don't do it relationally. And for us, it is exactly about that. It's about the relationship. We have a young couple, for example, last night sent us, a young couple who support us, they're both turned 30 just in the last few months. And they sent us a photograph of the scan of their baby that is on the way. And apart from the family, we were the first people to know. And that's relationship. You mentioned um, the, the situation in, in Philippi, the relationship, the partnership. You mentioned your your parents, how they saw themselves as equal partners within the process. Found on that idea a little bit. Why is there maybe that tension or reluctancy of missionaries to view the sender as a partner or of equal terms? Oh, man, there's so many reasons. There's everything from discomfort, talking about money, because for me, a partner brings three things. And we always ask for three things, not or, but and. It's, it's like a three-course set, maybe financial support, prayer, and encouragement. And we explain why we need all three. And if, if someone wants to choose one and not the other two, that's fine. But but we, we need all three, so we ask for all three. But there is, in 
in every culture, there's a reluctance of talking about the financial bit. It gets mumbled somehow or kind of or, or left vague. And it, it seems strange to me. We're happy to ask people to pray. We're even happy to ask people to join our mission. But we're not happy to ask them to give so much a month. We're asking to we're happy to say give your entire life to this mission, but we're less happy to say, would you give so much a month of your money? It's 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 a strange thing. But how we deal with money is at the heart of the gospel message. Jesus talked more about how we deal with material goods than heaven, hell, faith, and love combined. Yet in none of the main seminaries worldwide is this talked about. You can you can go through a three or four year theology degree course in almost any seminary and not have one minute spent on a biblical view of the stewardship of material goods. And Jesus said, it's very simple. You can either serve God or mammon. You can't serve both. You can't. God doesn't split his throne with mammon. So I think that's why once we wander into talking about the financial bit of it, it just gets so uncomfortable. And this is why, for me, ministry partner development itself is a spiritual ministry because it is dealing with an issue that Satan wants to to take the advantage in. And we have to push back on that spiritually. I can't remember who said this. It's either Luther or Calvin, but said that the, the last conversion is the person's wallet and that idea of ministry, but also within ourselves, the, the, the missionary who's inviting people to ask, but also challenging others to sow into the kingdom as ministry. So talk to that maybe idea just a little bit, if you don't mind. It took me a while to realize this. In my own life, because to be truthful, when I started out, all I was interested in is can I get enough money to live? Uh, we had we did everything wrong. We started in our first day of ministry with only 10% of what we should have had. Uh, we went hungry in the early days. Um, oh, it was just crazy. But it took me a while to realize, actually, no, there is actually only one missionary in the world, God himself. Everyone else is an assistant to that with a different role to play, but a specific role to play. And if any one person opts out of playing that role, it either leaves a gap or someone else has to step in to fill that gap, which means they leave a gap somewhere else. That was helpful for me to understand this. I'm inviting people into the, the mission of God. I'm not inviting people into the mission of Miles Wilson. I'm inviting them into the mission of God, where we walk side by side. That journey that we walk side by side is for the sake of God's glory. It, it probably took me four or five years to get to that point, a move away from this of me getting money. So if, if, for example, if somebody who'd been supporting us for 10 years phoned up and said, We've really loved supporting you for the last 10 years. You know what's coming next, you know, but God has put an orphanage in India on our hearts and we really would like to shift our support to that. So if it's okay with you, three months from now, we're going to stop our support for you and shift it there. Unless we can say, hallelujah, I'm glad you're still hearing from God about where he wants you to invest his resources, then we haven't understood it in the first place. In fact, our response should be, that's fantastic. Could you send me details of that orphanage we might want to give also? It really sounds from that, that we're actually caring more about one, the kingdom of God, but then also that people are actually hearing and listening to God for themselves and their own obedience to what God is speaking to them over our own personal needs. Exactly. And sometimes they don't hear the call of God. I mean, the classic example of this is First Kings 17, where Elijah, you know, he, he, he annoys Ahab. And there's this kind of conflict between Ahab and, and Elijah. And then God says to Elijah, OK, go hide in the Kerith ravine. And he is fed by the birds. He doesn't have to do anything. The food comes twice a day. Elijah is passive in that process, doesn't ask, doesn't have to do anything. But it's interesting, the wording is used. God says, I have commanded the birds to feed you. Then there's a new plan. The, the, the stream dries up bizarrely because Elijah had 
prophesied it wouldn't rain. So he's a, he's a victim of the success of his own ministry. And God says, new plan, go to Zarephath. I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Exactly the same wording used for the birds. But when he goes and meets the widow, she doesn't offer to, 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 to feed him. He has to ask. And when he asks, she says no, even though the call of God is already on her life to be a supporter of Elijah. And Elijah Man, I don't know. I don't know how he did this. But he said, "Well, thank you for your no answer. I'm not accepting that. Go and make that that last meal you have for yourself and your son. Give it to me first. To be truthful, I would have probably apologized and walked away and said, "Sorry, I must have got the wrong widow." And she would have died. I look back over my own life and think, how many widows have I let die metaphorically because of my own fear, pride, cultural barriers, whatever, and. Uh, and, and interestingly, in the first half of that story, Elijah directly receives the miracle. In the second half, he doesn't. The widow receives the miracle. Elijah is simply fed from her kitchen. And long after Elijah has left the widow's house, the miracle continues in her life because she, the miracle kept going of provision until the rains came, by which time Elijah was long gone. So I love that story. It's probably my favorite passage about what it means to live on a support basis. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I mean, God... In that case, then God still is the provider in both situations mm -hmm. using different means and then, you know, natural means and then also using a person from a different means and actually people that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be in a position to help. And maybe the widow wasn't actually in a position to help. It's a faith journey for the widow um, and coming from a source that is unlikely. Who would think to go ask a widow for her last meal as a source of provision that would sustain her. Yeah, what was interesting though is Elijah and God had talked first before Elijah talked to the widow. And that, that's critical in this. Elijah, mm. God will put people on your list that you will argue against and think, no, no, I can't be them. Time and time and time again, we've seen it is, it is about what happens in the life of the supporter. And even more important, what happens in heaven. When you talked about Philippi, most missionaries, when they, when they write to their supporters, they say, you know, thank you for your support. Here's all the wonderful things we've done. When the church in Philippi sent the gift to Paul, he was under house arrest, not doing anything. He was writing letters, which he didn't know would become scripture at the time. So he couldn't say, here's all this great campaign I've been doing, and here's all the humanitarian work I've been doing. So he writes back and says, thank you for your gift. He said, these gifts are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He, he actually lifts it up to a higher level. He said, what you have done in heaven, God says... Oh, that smells nice. That's a fragrant offering. It's a sacrifice that he accepts because some sacrifices God does not accept. And it put a smile on God's face. It's pleasing to God. But what's even more astounding is that Paul only uses that, that terminology in one other place in his writings, in Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, where he talks about the willing offering of Jesus on the cross being an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And when I first realized that about maybe six, seven years ago, put the hair in the back of my neck up when I thought Paul is using the same terminology to describe the giving of a church in extreme poverty, because Philippi was one of the Macedonian group of churches giving out extreme poverty, using the same wording to describe that as he is to describe the willing offering of Jesus on the cross. I'm still trying to work out oh, why this is. I think I think I've got a bit of a grasp on it. But man, this place is this process so far beyond budget, it's unbelievable. So beyond budget, beyond money, it's about God's kingdom, about his glory, mm -hmm. about inviting people into ministry, 
real partnerships together. So if that's the case, then it, it, it sounds like it, you know, it is a kingdom principle. It's a kingdom idea that comes through that sustains ministry and it's sustainable in the sense that so many people are involved that it's not reliant on one person. It becomes teamwork. It becomes greater than one person. But you also have already indicated a few obstacles in, in, in some of your, your statements towards it. Mm-hmm. You talked about, you know, Oftentimes people don't like to talk about money. People are kind of more focused on themselves a little bit and maybe not listening to God completely. Talk to me about some of the obstacles that you see people need to address when they're looking towards um, engaging in MPD, particularly in the first time as a beginning in this journey. When I teach about this, one of the things we look at is the children of Israel coming from the land of not enough Egypt to go to the land of promise with sustainability and overflow, but getting stuck in the land of just enough with the manna, etc., because of their fear of the giant. And so for me, I identify these as giants that are holding people back from the, the land of, of promise. The beauty of God is he will keep us in just enough because that's to do with his faithfulness, nothing to do with us. But just enough is not where we should be living. We should be living with sustainability and overflow. I don't mean personal wealth, but the ability to be the person that says, I'll pay for that kid to get the Bible rather than hope somebody else does it, etc. The sort of giants that hold us back, some are internal fear, pride. Pride's a big one. We don't always identify it, but it can be, well, that 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 desire to be independent, the the inability to accept grace and feel we have to work for it. So that, that I was doing a workshop in Jakarta some years ago with a couple from the Philippines that often help us when we're doing stuff in in, in Asia. And somebody in in the the mission we were with in, in Indonesia said, this whole thing feels like begging, to which the, the, the wife of the couple just looked at and said, yes, that's because you're a beggar. It's exactly what it is. And I was sitting in the back sitting and thinking, that's not normally how I would respond to this. She said, you can't be a Christian without being a beggar. You come to the cross, the only thing you can bring is your sin. You have nothing else to bring. You leave at the cross and you beg for God's mercy, which he is not required to give you. But he does. And he gives you his grace and everything else. So if you think you deserve one cent of your support because of what you do, you've denied, you deny the faith you preach. And it was interesting. Wow, that's a strong review. Yeah, yeah. I thought she's actually right. I don't deserve anything. So I think that pride is an issue. Another one is lack of ministry confidence. Satan keeps whispering in missionaries ears, yeah, 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 what you're doing is great, but really it's not as great as what somebody else is doing. If only you were in that situation, well, that'd be better. And he's saying exactly the same thing to the other person. Yeah, I see that, that humanitarian stuff. You're, that's brilliant. But you're not leading people to Jesus. Are you, are you, how can you ask people to support that? Uh, so he keeps he keeps whispering in her ears and undermining the call of God. I think also not understanding a biblical view of stewardship and generosity, not understanding it is more blessed to give than to receive. In the in the first generation of the church, generosity automatically flowed when people came to know Jesus. Just read any of those passages. Now, Acts 4 says, you know, that the disciples preached with such power that no one had a need. It's interesting. That's that's what's defined as the outcome of this great proclamation. That's not true in our gospel today. And for me, then, there's something missing in our gospel if when people trust Jesus, they are not automatically generous. It's beyond my pay grade and your pay grade to sort that out. But it does mean that when I sit down with someone asking them to come into to walk this journey as a supporter, I'm actually helping complete the gospel in their life, not their salvation, but the gospel, because it's asking them to think about their stewardship and their generosity. But because we don't understand that ourselves, that can be a hesitation. Culture can be an issue. Uh, 
I have taught this essay in about 80 countries on every continent and every time, every time issue comes up, this doesn't fit our culture, which I would usually say, of course it doesn't. It's a spiritual ministry. If it fits your culture, there's something wrong with what you're doing. It should never fit your culture because the work of God is always in conflict with earthly culture. But did Jesus ever say, well, this doesn't fit our culture, so I'm not going to do it? No. There were times he embraced the culture. There were times he adapted the cultural norms. There were times he just blasted through them. And we need to be the same. We, we, we dare not let our culture be a determining factor in what we do in the kingdom. We have to be wise with it, but also... Culture changes. I'm 69. The culture of the country I live in is vastly different than it was when I was born. And even in the time we've had this podcast, every person listening to this during the the time of this podcast, the culture has changed marginally, you know, minutely. So we can be cultural change agents. We can say, okay, if this is how it's worked in the culture in the past here, let's make it different. I work a lot in the emerging world of mission. And I would usually say to people, don't think about how can this work better for me? Think, how can this work better for my children's children? So when my children's children choose to go into mission work, they don't face the same barriers I face because we have changed the culture. That's a powerful image to think about, particularly in the emerging missions world, as you you called it, there's this idea of someone's going to have to be a first, someone's going to have to pioneer changes. Um, so how do we bring about that change? And then if this is a biblical principle or kingdom concept, then we need to find ways to express that amongst the cultures that we live because it's a kingdom principle. So how, how does that work out? Yeah, part of that's in their own mind as well. I was I was doing a retreat with some folk in Eastern Europe a while ago, and one particular, there were two girls from one country there where the concept was just a completely new concept. And one of them said, well, our giant is, this has never been done in our country before. Her colleague looked at her kind of quizzically and said, yes, but when we start doing this next week, no one can ever say that again. And she's right. Once they start, then nobody can ever say it's never been done before. But the person that steps up first will get a hammering, will get battered, will need a lot of encouragement and support around them until the point comes that this relational inviting people to walk the journey of, uh, of, of, of partnership development for the sake of God's kingdom till that becomes more of a norm. It wasn't the norm when I started 46 years ago. Right. And I would say that, that Phyllis and I in our own country have been part of a cultural shift. It is now increasingly the norm, but that's taken 40 years. So it's a generational shift as well then. So just from a encouragement perspective, what have you seen in some of these emerging mission worlds over the last 30 years that you've been teaching this? Yeah, man. I was asked by a group in sub-Saharan Africa. I'm not going to name the country or anything because I don't want the person to be identified. But it was a situation where there was a white leader leading effectively a black team, okay? All from the same country. She was grambling every month to get funding for them. They were raising maybe 5, 10, 15% at most. And then she realized, I'm actually rewarding failure here. You know, the, the worse they do, the more I have to do. So she said, we're, we're turning this round. You know, I went for a, a week's retreat with them and then they had another week just focusing on contacting local community. But it was interesting that the first thing they did, or when, when, I, when I teach about this, the first thing I teach about is giving not receiving, because to receive, somebody has to give. And at the end of that first session, I said, you know, as a result of this teaching on giving, you in the room here may want to pick up and take up an offering to bless someone who's not in this room. That would help you. It's up to you. So they did, and they collected a significant amount of money for a group of folk that had none. And the next day, they invited a, a white missionary to come who worked with street kids in the capital city, and they gave her the gift. And you can actually feel the tension in the room and the strangeness in the room. The, the lady herself, having received the gift, she's kind of stumbled over her thank you and then left. I went after and said, 
are you okay? She said, yeah, but I've never received a gift from the black community before. I, I felt I was patronizing them the way I was. I didn't know how to thank them. But then I talked to the guy who handed the gift over. And he said, all my life in ministry, I've assumed that mission money was external. It was white money. It came from America or Sweden or England or Germany or something. He said, because we as a black community here have given a gift to a white missionary, suddenly I realized there's 30 or 40 people I can ask, my friends. Within 18 months, they went from 15% being the most anybody raised to being, they were disappointed at one girl who was only at 65%. Wow. Another one was at 120% in had moved to another country working with uh, immigrant uh, widows and orphans and I, but, but the unlocking there and i always look to see what, what what will god use to unlock what unlock there was the giving and i'd encourage all your staff the next person they approach is not someone they're going to ask to be a, a partner it is the person that they themselves will choose to partner with that they phone somebody they know in ministry and say i'd like to support you how do i do that where do i send the money every month but because why should the supporters of all the fun? It is more blessed to give and receive. Don't sit at the bottom end of that blessing way. Be a, you should always be the type of supporter you want to have. Yeah, and we all want very generous supporters. <laughs> yep, and who pray for us regularly and encourage us. Yeah, let's model that ourselves first. There's no integrity in asking somebody else to do something that you're not already doing yourself. That's good. That's very good. A strong challenge for many of us um, who've been in ministry for a long time and been living by support is actually, are we doing this for others as well? Transitioning a bit to some of the mechanical aspects. Um, we've talked about the why behind it, some of the biblical Things, some of the cultural challenges and stuff. But when you're doing this and you're moving into developing an MPD or what are some of the mechanical things or the, the things that just have to be there to make it work? Yeah, I, I can tell you what, what I would do in my context, but hey, I'm a 69-year-old Irishman. This will need to be adapted forever. First of all, if I'm going to ask somebody to be a partner with me in this ministry, I, I, will, I will ask them for permission to ask them before I ask them. In other words, there's no surprises. Uh, don't just arrange to meet somebody for coffee and then suddenly pull the, the support rabbit out of the hat. I don't like hidden agendas myself, so don't offer any. So what I would normally do is I'd phone somebody up and say, Jim, there's miles here, blah, blah, how's things? And then I would say, I mean, as you know, we live on a supported basis. We have a team of people around us who support us financially and prayerfully with encouragement. And for this reason, whatever it is, you know, we've, we've appreciated your friendship over the years or you were such a help to me when I was younger or whatever. I'd love to have a chat with you about how you could be part of this. Can we get on our next week to have a chat about it? Uh, I keep it casual. If, if you try to make it very formal or, or even overly scripted, it doesn't sound like you. Be a genuine conversation. And I keep it personal. I have what I call a coffee cup conversation, sit beside somebody. And I just explain the passion God has put in my heart. And for me, it is the passion I have is missionaries being able to, to continue for as long as God calls them in sustainable ministry where they can overflow to others without having to keep looking at the money all. Explain that passion and how important that is in the extension of God's kingdom. And I, I ask them, would they like to be join the, uh, join the journey with me? It, and I make sure it is vision-driven, not budget-driven. For 20, maybe more, maybe 30 years, we have not told people a financial target that we're trying to reach. Interesting, nobody asks. Churches will ask, but individuals won't. If you storytell it based on the vision. So we often, right now, for example, I'm telling story of, two different people I've had contact with in the last number of months that made me cry when I heard their situations. And both of them are about to walk away from the ministry God called them to because of a lack of support. And that's desperate. So what I usually say to people is, you know, together we can make sure this couple 
can actually keep going in ministry so long as I can have the time to help them, etc. So would you join me in helping them so that they can continue planting churches in Muslim area in a major city in England? Would you want to do that? Um, and it is has to be an ask at the end, not a statement. I know ask differ in different countries, but it needs to be an ask. If, if I keep making statements, then the person I'm talking to can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I say, do you want to be part of this? Would you want to join our partner team? That then gives them the dignity of being in, in charge of the conversation from then on. There's always an awkward moment at that point when they suddenly realize, oh, I'm in charge here. I, I need to say something. But it's it's an important awkwardness to deal with. They speak next. And then follow them up. Make sure that I mean, in the excitement of that moment, they may well say yes, but then forget to actually complete it afterwards. Because as soon as your conversation with them is over, they go back to their normal life. You're still thinking about their support. They're thinking about getting the dinner ready for the children or whatever. So I always, always, always keep the initiative. I will say something like, so you know, maybe I've given them the, the bank details of where they send their financial support. I say, look, I'll, I'll get back to you in a few days, make sure that worked okay. Or if they said they have to pray about it, said fantastic. I'll give you a call in two or three days and just see what your thinking is. I always keep the initiative because there's nothing more awkward than six months later meeting somebody who'd said they'd support you and they haven't started. And you're thinking they never started. And they're thinking, did we ever start that thing? And there's that the awkwardness is even worse then. So just keep the initiative. So ask for permission before asking for support. Keep it personal. Keep it vision driven. The need you're talking about is not your need for money. It's the need for someone to have the, the, the touch of God's love in their lives. Keep it story-based if you can, and make sure it's an ask, not just a statement, and then follow it up. The five good things for us to all consider as we're doing this. Make it sound so easy. <laughs> well, in one sense, it is. Um, in, in our context, if a couple get married, the wife has bridesmaids. And in some of the countries that, that uh, your guys live in, that will be the case also. So I, I usually say, particularly to women in this, it's like, it's like asking someone to be a bridesmaid. The purpose of a bridesmaid is to walk the journey with you to see something completed. And... Normally, that's done with great excitement and and no apology. And you make sure it's done very relationally. You don't send a letter out to all your friends saying, big news, he's asked me, I've said yes, I need bridesmaids. If you're interested, please fill in the, the coupon below. And no, 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 the wrong people might show up. And those who are your really good friends will be insulted if it's done in person. So I tend to think of it as like building a wedding party of people standing with the couple to see the couple achieve a vision that is important to them. So yeah, in that sense, it's it's not it's not complicated. Scary at times, but not complicated. Yeah, scary at times, but not complicated. That's good. So I mean, what what are some of the keys to helping people overcome their fears if it is scary? I mean, what would you suggest? Until this year, I flew a lot. I, I worked out that for twenty nine years, I I was on an airplane every month except eight, which is kind of scary. But every minute you're on an airplane is trying to crash. Gravity is trying to make a crash. That is very scary. In fact, the original Wright Brothers flight could take place inside a 747 today. That, that's they, they could just about overcome gravity for about six seconds and down it came again. Wow. So what did they do? Did they say, because this pull down is there, we're going to stop? No, they kept going. They kept working at it, working at it, working at it, until they came up with a set of powers and principles that were stronger than the gravity trying to make a crash. The pilot in an airplane does not have a gravity off button, but he has buttons that he pushes that means the gravity can be overcome. After 46 years, that gravity is still trying to pull me down. I'm still nervous making that first phone call. I have asked God to take it away. He has not. He's left me with it and probably left everybody with some bits of that. So what I've realized I have to do is I have to grasp the stronger powers, otherwise I'll crash. The testimony of God's word, 
the testimony of what God has already done in my life, the testimony of what he's done in the lives of other people, the fact that there's a 33-year-old man in heaven today at the right hand of the Father who lived on a supported basis, who is tempted in all ways just like us, gives me the confidence. I can talk to him. I would say, don't wait for the nervousness to go. It may never go, but start building those other strengths that you that you turn to to allow you overcome the drag down. That's 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 all I can offer on that. But the temptation always is to say, well, this doesn't work. If the Wright brothers had said this doesn't work after the first crash, we never would have had airplanes. At least they wouldn't have been those pioneers. So crash, get up, dust yourself down and think, why did I crash? What made that crash? What can I apply from all this package of strength that I know exists to make sure I deal with that the next time? Yeah. That's good. We just have to step out and do it and trust God and continue to be in relationship with him and lean on him for strength and the words and encouragement. And it's really good. I, mean, I would say also evangelism is not doesn't fit any of our cultures. Evangelism makes all of us nervous, but we just work out ways of doing it. We work out ways of, of doing it and overcoming our nervousness and the cultural barriers. Otherwise, uh, you wouldn't even do what you do as a mission. Yeah, absolutely. So just um, beginning to wrap up our conversation a bit, I would like you maybe just to address some of the organizational size. We've talked about this a little bit from a personal individual perspective, just in a couple of thoughts, how as an organization can we better support or work with people so that they're well-equipped to do this? What are some of the key factors that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I would always say there's four areas in this leadership training, coaching, and then a package of infrastructure, policies, procedures, et cetera. Leadership needs to model it. And I mean, I, I looked at your values before we had this call and every one of your values speaks directly into the whole this whole process. I think your leadership should probably go back. I, I don't know how often you read those values, but they're there and they're they're lovely. They're wonderful. But all of them, all of them speak to this. And I think that your leadership at, at every level, team level, I, I don't know how you're structured, but at every, any point that from anyone who has a role of leading others needs to speak positively about the process needs to model it themselves. They need to be the first ones willing to take the risks, not necessarily the first to get to 100%, but the first to say, okay, I'll try this. I'll get out there. I'll see what happens. I'm willing to take time to work on it. Um, So leaders, the positive reinforcement for leaders filters its way down through the rest of the organization. Training. This is a skill that most people don't know how to do. And I, when I offer training in this, I, for me, it's three areas, the, the heart, the head, and the hands. How I feel about this, and this needs to be dealt with some scriptures, what I know about this in my head, how do people make giving decisions, why do people make this giving decisions, what causes me to be uncomfortable, etc. And then hands, what do I do about it? And for me, again, with the focus on that coffee cup conversation, sitting with a friend, like I would ask my brother or a friend to be the best man at my wedding. How, how would I do that? Then coaching. Training tends to be an intense time over a short period of time. Coaching is then the ongoing helping overcome the barriers that you that you will inevitably hit when the training is over. So I would say investing in coaching is important. Uh, if I had a choice going back again to the last 30 years or so that I've been teaching this full time, I would spend more time focusing on coaching than training. Training without coaching has very limited impact. Coaching without training can actually have better impact. But the two together, where there's an intense training time followed by a coaching that has accountability in it. It has helping people understand their own issues, overcome them, et cetera. That'll be important. And then finally, that's one infrastructure. What are your policies on this? Uh, are Have you got organizational-wide policies? Have you got national policies? 
Who determines those? What happens if they're not implemented? What are the procedures? What actually happens someone? What time is allocated to this process? Do you have a, a monitoring process that allows you to see what support level people is at, are at? And then have you a means of stepping in when there's a, an issue and perhaps freeing the person from their other ministry assignments to work on their support? I know historically you've been traditionally a bit of a, well, good luck, come back when it's all finished. And that is uh, not helpful. And I know that you're moving well towards that. I think that's important that you do. You need to care for your people and the people, not just the staff, it is also the the people who will support them. So your infrastructure needs to reflect that. Um, If someone gives a gift to one of your staff members in country, how quickly will they hear about that? How quickly are they able to thank them for it? What's that process in place? There are there are good processes up there like Donor Hub that come out of the TNT uh, family of stuff that, that can help you do that. So I would say the leaders need to model it and positively enforce the process. You need a training. And I would encourage you, look at the trainings. I know you're looking at the SRS training and some of the stuff that, that the Network Forum people are doing in Europe. But I think you probably need something that reflects your cultural, organizational context, as well as the geographical cultural context you work in, perhaps even to supplement some of the other stuff, because it's all coming out of a culture that's not yours. And then coaching. Critical, I would say, if you do anything, train coaches so that there's that handholding to achieve a success and get your infrastructure sorted out, have policies that work, that are implemented, Put your core values into practice and you'll do fine. Great. Thank you for that. That's really encouraging. Some key concepts, some key ideas to to look forward to um, as we journey in this. Any other additional resources or ways to follow you to kind of learn from you and some of your experiences? Like I say, I'm 69 and my aim is when I'm 70 to step back quite a bit. I'm just too tired. Uh, been doing this for too long. And there's a new generation coming behind me, which is brilliant. So I would say rather than follow me, There's a group called Network Forum. I know, Ben, you're aware of of that. And I would say sign up to get their information. I know it's European-based, but a lot of what I've done over the years is invested in people who are involved in that. So it's Network Forum, all one word, networkforum.eu. Sign up to get the newsletter. Um, Now and again, we do Zoom cafes where we chat about stuff. And it's, it's, it's increasingly not just European. But I say that's going to be better than trying to follow me because uh, a year from now, I want to be uh, not quite as busy as I am now. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, just one of the questions that we like to ask people, what are you learning and reading at the moment? How do you continue to grow? Uh, interestingly, I, I'm dyslexic. So reading has always been a challenge for me. I, I can write okay, uh, but reading is always a challenge. But I say what I'm learning generally is the importance of finishing well. As you go through life, you hit different seasons and different things come to mind. And at in my late 60s, coming to 70, finishing well is important and investing in the next generation. I've probably spent about 10 years doing that. I wish I'd started that earlier. So one thing I would say is anything you learn, whoever is listening to this, anything you learn, who are you going to pass that on to so that they can pass it on to somebody else? We need multiplication here, not just addition. So start your finishing process long before you think you need to. That's good sound advice right there. That's great. Just as we're closing, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave the listener with as they consider MPD? Take it seriously. The, the knowledge of God's glory demands more than just enough. So those are the one thing that sits with me so often is that mission lives in a land of just enough all the time. There's just enough to keep going. But what was interesting is that 
40 years in the wilderness, Joshua sent two spies in to Rahab. Remember, this was the generation that had, that had feared the giants earlier were now dead, apart from Joshua and Caleb, because they were terrified of these giants. What did Rahab say to the two spies? We are terrified of you. Exactly the same people. So I would say, don't allow that lie of Satan that holds you back, stop you from overcoming those giants. Because the, to see the knowledge of God's glory fill more of this earth demands more than just enough. And if we live in just enough, we'll end up with just enough type ministries. We'll end up being just enough effective. The gates of hell will not prevail against the, 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 the mission of God. We need to get out there and realize that is true, but you can't do that with a just enough mindset. So that's why you need to work on this, because the glory of God demands more than just enough. Wow, that's really good. Thank you for that. Miles, I really thank you for your time. Thank you for sowing into us, for sowing into the kingdom in this area and, and really contributing to people coming to the land of plenty, be able to do and fulfill the call of God on their own lives. So really thank you for taking the time today. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I found Miles' insights very encouraging and challenging. How about you? What might God be challenging you with as you consider your ministry partner development? Do you need to be more relational or perhaps bolder in your invitation for people to partner and pray with you? Or, or is it something else? I'd like to challenge you to seriously reflect on this topic as it is vital for long-term sustainability in ministry. As an organization, we want to develop a healthy culture and understanding of MPD as well as support you in your journey. If you'd like to learn more about developing your MPD plan or receive coaching on this topic, please contact Jesse, the field administrator, for more information. As always, we'd like to hear from you. Please send us ideas for future topics or your thoughts on this latest episode. You can email us at the address in the episode show notes. Thanks and God bless.